Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash MJW. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on Secondary AML. This activity comprises four episodes featuring Dr. Jeffrey Lancet. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, my name is Jeff Lancet from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. And in these upcoming four short episodes, I will be talking about determining treatment choice in patients with newly diagnosed secondary AML, risk stratification, and patient-related and disease-related factors. I will also provide an overview of the advances in secondary AML treatments, the role of intensive chemotherapy, and how these factors drive treatment choice. So what is secondary AML? Well, it's really just a composite definition of AML that refers to either AML arising from a prior myeloid malignancy or following chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And it actually does not have its own category in any of the modern pathology classification systems and can be considered essentially a clinical definition. Now, historically, uh, this clinically defined subgroup of AML does poorly compared to de novo AML, irrespective of age, although please note that the incidence of secondary AML is considerably higher in older versus younger individuals. And we typically estimate the incidence of secondary AML as being around 30 to 40% of the total incidence of AML. However, more recent evidence indicates that secondary AML is, in fact, highly correlated with the presence of several key genetic mutations, as shown here in the table. And these mutations include SRSF2, ZRSR2, SF3B1, ASXL1. Many of them are familiar to you as, as mutations that are commonly encountered in MDS. So it's not surprising that they would also be present in secondary AML, which arises from MDS. But most importantly, as shown in the curve, is the fact that clinically defined de novo AML, but with secondary type mutations, as I, as I just mentioned, uh, behaves much worse than clinically defined de novo AML without such mutations. So there is clearly a prognostic importance related to the presence of these mutations, even with clinically defined de novo AML. And the understanding of these secondary mutations is really starting to take hold and to impact the classification and the risk stratification of AML. And here you can see the new ELN risk uh, classification. Uh, that now includes a host of secondary mutations traditionally associated with secondary AML, and that these secondary mutations uh, carry independent adverse prognostic significance. You can also see the new WHO classification for AML with MDS-related changes, and that this category of AML now includes these same defining somatic mutations, in addition to the disease-defining cytogenetic abnormalities that were uh, previously used to define AML with MDS-related changes. Okay, so when the rubber hits the road, we have to choose the safest and the most effective therapy for our patients with secondary AML. 
And the personalized and patient-related factors for doing this include things such as age, comorbidities, functional status, uh, the molecular status of the disease, and the suitability of the patient for a potentially curative allogeneic transplant. So based in, on this, I now have a challenge question for you, so please stay tuned. Now this is a busy slide for sure, but I think it nicely illustrates the variety of treatment options for patients with secondary AML that includes novel combinations, uh, novel chemotherapeutic compounds such as CPX351, uh, targeted agents, as well as allogeneic transplant. And please note also that we still uh, strongly consider eligibility or ineligibility for intensive therapy as one of the key drivers of therapeutic decision-making. Now, highlighting some of the key drugs and combinations that are indicated for use in secondary AML, we will start with CPX351, which is, in fact, a novel liposome that encapsulates donorubicin and cytarabine in what is a fixed synergistic molar concentration ratio. Uh, so you're getting dual drug delivery in a synergistic fashion. And as many of you know, a large phase three trial demonstrated the survival benefit of CPX351 over standard seven plus three induction in uh, these induction eligible patients with newly diagnosed secondary AML. And shown here are the data that confirmed the continued benefit at five years of follow-up. And it's also important to recognize that allogeneic transplant, although I haven't shown the data here, um, the outcomes after allogeneic transplant were better for patients who had received initial therapy with CPX compared to those who had received initial therapy with 7 plus 3. So this is an important consideration for uh, patients who can undergo more intense therapy with secondary AML. I will mention briefly that the safety was comparable between CPX and 7 plus 3 with actually fewer early deaths associated with CPX. Um, and most importantly, I think, is the hematologic toxicity that we see with CPX, meaning that there is a longer time to count recovery, about a 7 to 10 day longer time to the recovery of neutrophils and platelets compared with standard 7 plus 3 induction. So based in, on this, I now have a challenge question. Now, there are also effective lower intensity options for less fit patients with new secondary AML, and these uh, options include hypomethylating agents combined with venetoclax, and also more targeted therapies such as IDH inhibitors with or without HMAs. And I'd ask you to also keep in mind, please, the fact that there is still no truly validated criteria uh, to determine fitness for intensive chemotherapy, and the decision remains quite subjective and often comes down to uh, the patient preference and whether um, the patient wants to go through with more intensive versus less intensive therapy. Now here's the VIALI-A trial of azacitidine and venetoclax for treatment-naive AML in patients ineligible for standard induction therapy. And as you can see, patients who received azacitidine and venetoclax compared to azacitidine monotherapy had a better overall median survival by about five months and about a 34% reduction in the overall risk of death during the entire course of the study. And this trial, of course, led to the FDA and the EMA approval of the HMA-Venetoclax combination for elderly patients with newly diagnosed AML who were considered unfit for more intensive induction chemotherapy. The most common side effects with this regimen were cytopenias and febrile neutropenia, no surprise. Um, and it, it, these uh, toxicities were generally more common in the combination arm. 
And it's no secret that this regimen, this combination of HMA plus venetoclax, causes significant marohypoplasia and severe cytopenia. So careful monitoring of blood counts is really critical, uh, especially given the fact that this is an outpatient regimen where the monitoring of such uh, blood counts uh, can be more challenging. Now, there's really been a plethora of new drugs in AML over the past several years, including for secondary AML, and several of them are listed here. IDH inhibitors are a good example of targeted therapy that may be appropriate for some patients with secondary AML that have the appropriate mutation. Other agents include mutant TP53 modulating agents, such as epernetopopt, um, the macrophage checkpoint inhibitor, megrolimab, um, BCL2 inhibitors, inclusive of venetoclax, which can be used in combination with other agents, um, anti-CD33 antibody therapy, often in the form of an antibody drug conjugate, um, other novel IDH inhibitors um, in combinations with other drugs, and FLT3 inhibitors, uh, both as monotherapies and in combination with other drugs. So as an example of a targeted therapy combination approach that's applicable to a select subgroup of patients with a specific mutation, namely IDH, IDH1, you can see here that the combination of azacitidine and ibacitinib is highly effective and superior to azacitidine monotherapy for patients with newly diagnosed IDH1 mutated AML. And this is uh, for both event-free survival and overall survival. And even single-agent ibacitinib monotherapy can be effective as frontline therapy for IDH1 mutated AML, particularly for elderly and more frail patients who may struggle with more myelosuppressive combination therapy. And of note, ivacidinib monotherapy is in fact approved as frontline therapy for AML with an IDH1 mutation based primarily on the results of this phase 1-2 study, uh, which included a significant number of newly diagnosed patients as well as relapsed and refractory patients. And one key toxicity in the IDH inhibitor class of drugs to be aware of is differentiation syndrome, which can occur in about 5 to 10% of patients but carries a high mortality rate if it's not recognized and treated promptly. So with that, I thank you very much for your attention, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jeff Lancet from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. And in this next episode, we will be discussing a patient case. So here we have a 77-year-old gentleman with a history of congestive heart failure, type 2 diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. He presents with increasing fatigue and shortness of breath with exertion. Uh, his history is notable for worsening, gradual worsening anemia over the past 14 months with a generally negative workup, but no bone marrow biopsy was performed at the time. Current workup reveals pancytopenia, and a bone marrow biopsy now is subsequently performed, revealing 80% cellularity with 39% myeloblasts in the setting of marked megakaryocytic dysplasia. The cytogenetics revealed trisomy 19, and next-generation sequencing reveals mutations of both EZH2 and TET2. And it's important to note that this patient does carry the secondary-like mutation, EZH2, and along with the history of progressive anemia, strongly suggests that he has AML arising from MDS. And in the new WHO classification system presented earlier, his disease would indeed fit the definition of AML with MDS-related changes. So what are the reasonable goals of care for this patient? Well, this is a patient who, for whom treatment with curative intent is not realistic. So the primary goals would likely be 
disease control for as long as possible that allows for time out of the hospital and hopeful remission that would ensure less need for supportive care and transfusions and things like that. And as far as what is the most appropriate frontline therapy for this patient, in light of his age and comorbidities, um, the appropriate frontline therapy would likely entail a lower intensity option. And of note, this patient does not have a targetable mutation. So this patient begins treatment with 5-azocytidine and venetoclax. And following one cycle, he becomes profoundly pancytopenic, requiring frequent red blood cell and platelet transfusions. A bone marrow biopsy performed at day 26, which is right around the time that he would be due to start the second cycle, revealed hypocellularity and a reduction in BLAST down to 5%. Uh, with additional time, he uh, recovers his neutrophil count to above 1,000 and his platelets up to 56,000. In cycle two of the combination with hypomethylating agent plus dose attenuation of venetoclax uh, started, and he remains in remission at seven months. So based in, on this, I now have a challenge question for you, so please stay tuned. Thank you so much for your attention, and please join me for the next episode. Hi, my name is Jeff Lancet from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, and in this next episode, we will be discussing a patient case. So here we have a 48-year-old female, otherwise healthy, with a history of stage 2A breast cancer, treated with combined chemotherapy that included doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, and taxol four years ago, who now presents with new-onset pancytopenia. Uh, she's minimally symptomatic and is very fit, exercising five to six times per week. Uh, she has a bone marrow biopsy performed that reveals 50% cellularity and 65% blasts. Myeloblasts, I should mention. Cytogenetics revealed a deletion of chromosome 7. And next-generation sequencing reveals a mutation of WT1. So let's ask a few questions about this patient. What are, first off, what are the reasonable goals of care for such a patient? And I would say that uh, this is a younger and healthier patient, so treatment with curative intent would certainly seem appropriate. And that would be a very reasonable goal. What is uh, the most appropriate frontline therapy for this patient? Uh, well, I think that more intensive frontline therapy should certainly be considered for this patient given her uh, young age and overall fitness and the fact that she has therapy-related AML. And given the efficacy of CPX351 in chemotherapy-eligible patients with secondary AML, inclusive of therapy-related AML, um, I believe CPX would be a very appropriate option. As far as what are the best options for post-remission therapy in this patient, well, given that curative therapy is an appropriate goal for such a patient, uh, we should give strong consideration for allogeneic transplant uh, in this case. And in addition, given the promising long-term survival results in secondary AML patients who receive transplant after induction with CPX351, um, uh, this should be strongly considered as a subsequent step. One could also consider maintenance therapy with oral azacytidine, but its role has not really yet been established in transplant-eligible patients such as this. So this patient began treatment with CPX351. A bone marrow biopsy performed at day 14 was hypocellular with less than 5% blasts. Uh, 
so a good, a good early result. Uh, she then recovered her neutrophil count to greater than 1,000 and platelets to greater than 100 at day 35, which, as you know, is uh, along the lines of what you would expect with CPX351, which has a slightly longer time to count recovery than standard induction therapy. A bone marrow biopsy on day 39 indicated normal cellularity and 3% blast. Cytogenetics had normalized, and the WT1 mutation was no longer detected. So this patient subsequently went on to receive a matched unrelated allogeneic transplant at day 75, and she remains in complete remission at 13 months post-transplant. So based on this case, we have a challenge question for you, so please stay tuned. And thank you very much for your attention, and please join me on the next episode. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jeff Lancet from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. And in this next episode, I will be discussing a patient case. So here we have an 86-year-old gentleman with a history of prostate cancer for which he received external beam radiation therapy four years ago and currently has no evidence of active disease. Also with a history of hypertension, mild dementia, and his daughter reports that over the past month he had been sleeping more and was noticeably more short of breath uh, when walking out to the mailbox. His workup revealed a pancytopenia with a white count of 1.1, hemoglobin 7.3, and platelet 67. A bone marrow biopsy revealed 80% cellularity with 70% myeloblasts. Uh, the cytogenetics revealed a normal male karyotype. And NGS profiling revealed mutations of both IDH1 and TET2. So in this case, what are reasonable goals of care for this patient? And again, similar to an earlier case we discussed, in very elderly patients such as this, um, disease palliation and control should be considered primary goals as opposed to cure, um, along with avoidance of hospitalization and uh, maximization of quality of life. And then what is the most appropriate frontline therapy for this patient? Well, this is a patient who should also receive lower intensity therapy. And here, given the fact that he has an IDH1 mutation, we do have some choices that include um, azacitidine plus venetoclax, azacitidine plus ivacidinib, which is an IDH1 inhibitor, or even ivacidinib monotherapy um, alone. And in this case, given his very advanced age, mild dementia, and the fact that he carries an IDH1 mutation, I would be inclined to start with ivacidinib monotherapy uh, with a reasonable expectation of efficacy and probably less likely prominent uh, myelosuppression and maybe an easier treatment schedule that includes an oral therapy only um, as opposed to uh, protracted courses of parenteral therapy. So the patient begins ivacidinib as monotherapy, 500 milligrams twice daily. At approximately day five, he develops a low-grade fever with mild shortness of breath at rest, and a chest X-ray revealed increased interstitial markings. Uh, this was consistent with a diagnosis of differentiation syndrome, which occurs in up to 10% of patients receiving initial IDH therapy for AML. Uh, the patient began dexamethasone 10 milligrams per day with continuation of his ibocidinib, and his symptoms gradually improve over the next week. At day approximately plus 45, he has recovered his ANC to greater than 1,000, and his hemoglobin and platelet count are well within the acceptable range. 
So based on this case presentation, I now have a question, a challenge question for you. So please stay tuned. And I would like to thank you very much for your time and for your attention. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.